0: We live in a world filled with suffering. Uh, we, we see this suffering in the news when we're just bombarded with gut-wrenching violence. In Bangladesh, terrorists attack a cafe and by the time it ends, dozens of people are dead including three college students. The attack in Nice, France left 84 people dead and 200 people injured when someone drove a truck into a crowd on Bastille Day. And on Friday, a teen gunman in Germany opened fire and killed nine people in Munich. And since the September 11th attacks on New York City, in the World Trade Center, we ask ourselves how long will the violence and hatred continue? And we see suffering in natural disasters in 2004, an earthquake and giant tsunami hit the Indian Ocean, and when it was all said and done, 300,000 people were dead. And this year, we've been hit with news of earthquakes and floods and droughts and heat waves, and we ask, why is there so much suffering? We see suffering in our own country. During the first week of July, two African American men were fatally shot by police And so, our African American brothers and sisters are asking, How long? How long do we have to live in fear? How long until we see justice and peace? And I want to acknowledge fears on the other side, as later that week, five police officers were brutally gunned down in Dallas, and then later on, three more in Baton Rouge. We see suffering in our own lives. As I interacted with bridge guests this past spring, I just heard stories of gut-wrenching suffering, gut-wrenching suffering. One guest, during the course of uh, Bridge, he lost his mom. Another guest described how his spouse was suffering these severe migraines that just left her unable to function. And then another guest described the pain and difficulty of raising two children with a terrible blood disease. And so these guests wonder why... Is life so hard? How long do we have to endure the pain? None of us need to live long until, you experience, until we experience suffering in our own life, either in yourselves or in the lives of people around you. And we don't have to live long until we start asking the question, like Habakkuk asked, Oh Lord, how long? How long do I have to wait until I get the right job? Until I get married, until I have children, how long do I have to wait until I reach my dreams and hopes? How long do I have to wait to see justice, to see peace in society, to see the end of lawlessness? We don't have to live long to just going to God and start asking, why? Why are others, why am I suffering but others aren't? Why am I struggling when others find it so easy? Why do the wicked prosper, but the righteous suffer? Why do I have to go through, and you fill in the blank? How long until I get relief from, and you fill in the blank? What is it for you? Habakkuk, like the book of Job, looks directly at the problem of evil and the problem of delay. If a good God exists... Why is there evil in this world? Why doesn't God do something about it? We're going to be taking a three-part journey through the three chapters in Habakkuk. And the prophet Habakkuk sees the problem of evil with his eyes wide open, and he wrestles with God. And if you can't wait to find out the resolution, how it all ends in chapter 3, I encourage you to take the book of Habakkuk and read it Read it when you're at home. You can read through the three chapters pretty quickly. But in this first chapter, we see that when God makes no sense to me, we must turn to God and press on in prayer. When God makes no sense to me, we must turn to God and press on in prayer. And the format of Habakkuk chapter 1 is pretty simple. It's a question-answer-question sandwich. It's basically Habakkuk asking questions. How long and why? God answers. And then Habakkuk asks God, are you sure about that? And so it's a question, answer, question. And so Habakkuk opens with these questions, how long and why? And he's wondering what is going on around him. Before we dive too deeply into that, I don't want us to lose the forest for the trees. Uh, The Bible, it can seem like a complex book, but the story is actually very simple. God created us that we might glorify Him and enjoy Him forever in the words of the Westminster Catechism. And this is the reason we exist. So in the Garden of Eden, God created Adam and Eve, and they started off glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. But then they messed up in Genesis 3, and sin entered the world, and then so did death and exile. Death and exile would happen again when the world became so wicked that God had to wipe it out with a flood. Now, things would seem different with the calling of Abraham. Abraham with the Abraham story. Uh, Abraham, who was called to be the father of the nation of Israel, Abraham, who was chosen and set apart so that Abraham and Israel, their nation of Israel, were called to glorify God and enjoy Him forever in the land of Canaan. But you know the story. Israel turned out to be just the same as all the other wicked nations around them. They were just as wicked. And before any Israelite or even Habakkuk asks how long and why, God asks these questions. When the Sabbath is violated, God asks, how long will you refuse to obey my commandments? When the nation of Israel, out of fear, they turn their back on God and turn their back on entering the promised land, out of fear, God asks, how long will you despise me? So God isn't a newcomer to the problem of evil, to the problem of delay. He's not coming at us as someone who's cold and far off, but he is with his people. He understands. And you know from the story that the nation of Israel eventually enter, conquer, and then live in the land of Canaan. But because Israel was so wicked, the nation would be divided. There would be a divided house with Israel in the north and Judah in the south, two separate nations. And Habakkuk is a prophet to the southern kingdom, the southern nation of Judah. And I want to give you a helpful tip on how to read prophecy. A lot of times we can think prophecy is about the current events or about what's going on in America. Or we can read prophecy and try to construct a very detailed timeline for the apocalypse and the end of the, end of the world. That's actually not how God wants us to read prophecy. Prophecy was written two the people of God, for the people of God, so that we could understand God's redemptive plan, first for Israel and then for the church. Habakkuk might seem like an obscure book in an obscure part of the Bible. Habakkuk is one of the 12 minor prophets. Minor meaning it's not, unimport- it's not unimportant, but that it's shorter in length. So all of the 12 minor prophets you could pick up and just read in one sitting. They're relatively short. And the co- a common theme throughout Habakkuk and all the minor prophets and all the prophecies, if you pick up Isaiah or Jeremiah, is really God's redemptive love for an unworthy people. So if you go into prophecy thinking and remembering that it's about God's redemptive love for an unworthy sinful people, you'll be well on your way to understanding prophecy. So Habakkuk is writing and prophesying in Judah during a time of great wickedness. If you look at verse 3 in chapter 1, Habakkuk describes the iniquity and wrong. He says, destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. We don't know the exact date for the book of Habakkuk because there were so many wicked kings in so many t- periods of time in Israel's history where the people were just so bad. There were kings who led the nation in idolatry and setting up these pagan I- idols, sometimes even in Yahweh, God's own temple. There were kings who were leading the nation in violence, shedding innocent blood, and kings leading the nation in a flagrant disregard for God's word. Jeremiah was a contemporary of Habakkuk and prophesied probably around the same time, and this was his experience when he tried to share God's word. As Jehudi read three or four columns of Jeremiah's scroll, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. And if you look in verse 4 of Habakkuk, we see the results. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Perverted. So Habakkuk is pleading with God during a time of great national wickedness to destroy the wicked and vindicate the righteous because things aren't right. Things aren't the way they should be. And Habakkuk sees the problem of evil, the problem of sin and suffering, and he's just wondering how this all makes sense. God, God is supposed to be good and strong and compassionate, wise and just, but the world is the exact opposite. And so we see two completely opposite realities. We see the world, and then we see God. And those two things don't fit. So even though God makes no sense to Habakkuk, we're seeing here that Habakkuk is trying to press on, looking to God and pressing on in prayer. And Habakkuk's world, the world that he's in, is really our world today. We live in a world, a nation of sin and idolatry. We, we live in a time just like the book of Judges, where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. We see human life disregarded. We see babies being slaughtered in their mother's wombs. We see marriage being redefined. And so, because of all the suffering, the oppression, the violence, the disease and disasters, we ask ourselves, how long will the, until the evil will be stopped? How long until the righteous will be satisfied? And notice that these aren't one-off problems for Habakkuk. These are problems that have been going on for quite some time. So it's not just the problem of evil, but really the problem of delay. Look with me to verse 2 in chapter 1, where Habakkuk cries out, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Habakkuk has been praying and waiting for some time, but he's not getting any response from God. Can we relate to that? Can we relate to that in your own life, in our own times, where we're looking for justice, we're looking for truth, we're looking for vindication, but we're not seeing it. Cell phones were invented a, a while ago, but they didn't become popular until the 1970s and 1980s. And this whole idea that you could carry your phone with you and not be leashed to a landline was really high-tech. Uh, when the Motorola DynaTech 8000X was released in 1983, ah, there's a picture of it right there. It was truly state-of-the-art. You know, it's, it's your classic brick phone right there. Uh, you drop one of those things, you're not worried about cracking your screen. You're worried about cracking your toe. So cell phones were great, and as technology grew in leaps and bounds. They got smaller, did more stuff. But one problem has remained with cell phones, and that's the problem of dropped calls. If you have a cell phone, you've gotten dropped calls. And the worst part of it is sometimes you don't realize the call's dropped until later. You know, you're on the phone, you're talking, you're giving directions, you're chatting about the game that just happened, you're making plans for dinner, and then you're talking on and on, and then you realize there's nothing on the other side, that there's nothing. The line's gone dead. And nearly all cell phone users have experienced dropped calls, and some users several times a day. If prayer, is a direct, if prayer is a direct line to God, Habakkuk and maybe you are getting dropped calls. You feel like you're in a cellular dead spot, and you're wondering, where is my connection? Can God hear me now? But for Habakkuk, it's not just the fact that he has a He's experiencing a dropped call, or he's in a cell phone dead spot. For Habakkuk, his his phone has died, and he's stranded in the middle of nowhere with no connection, no answer, and no response. If this isn't something you're experiencing, likely you will at some point in time. It's not a matter of if, but when. Because if you've read your Bible, you know that suffering... Is, is an important, it's an important theme all throughout the Bible. Just to give you an example, one-third of all the psalms are lament psalms. Lament psalms are, are, are psalms of grief, of sorrow, of loss. Uh, now, many of the psalms are about worshiping God, giving thanks to Him, confessing how awesome He is, confessing His great salvation. But one-third of them deal with the reality of heartbreaking loss, the loss of life, the loss of friends, the loss of land. For instance, Psalm 13, this is David crying out to God, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And the cry of Habakkuk, the cry of King David, is really the cry of our hearts as we look around us and wonder how long Will the violence and hatred continue? How long will we continue to suffer loneliness, a dead-end job? How long will we continue to suffer sickness? There are some among us who are in a period of acute, intense, and prolonged suffering. And this might not be you, but there are people among us who are walking through that kind of suffering. And it's possible one day God might have you or me walk through a long period of suffering one such brother in our midst is a man named Ben Heidegren. In 2011, Ben was in a terrible car accident that left him with severe brain damage. Ben's in a constant state of pain with a headache of immense magnitude that never leaves him. Ben wrote a book about his experience called Forlorn Hope, and I encourage you to pick it up. And he wrote it, Uh, to help those who are experienced that kind of prolonged suffering and also to help the church understand how to care for the suffering in our midst. I want to read you a brief excerpt. This is Ben writing. I am in constant pain always. It never leaves me. Sometimes it is worse than other times, but it is always severe. I manage by shoving it behind a door in a corner of my mind and then locking it away. This works most of the time. It allows me to go through everyday life, talk and think. But sometimes, for one reason or another, it breaks out during the summer of two thousand and fourteen. I spent nearly a week aching for death i wasn 't actively suicidal, but I wanted nothing more than to leave this world and enter the rest of heaven. Probably what, what was most dramatic, what is most dramatic about his condition is answer amnesia, which limits Ben's memory to the past six hours. So anything beyond the last six hours, Ben just simply doesn't remember. And he continues in his writing, my memories last for a certain time and then fade out into nothingness, leaving me stranded on the far side of an ever widening gap between my present and my past. I cannot remember any of the details of life between the accident and the writing of this book. And he goes on to describe the pain of having to drop out of college, losing his scholarship, and having his Marine Corps commission revoked. And then he writes this, which I thought was just so powerful and so gut-wrenching. Everything that I had trained for in my life was suddenly gone, and I am never getting it back. And for Ben and many people, everything they hope for in life is gone. They're never getting it back. They're asking, how long and why? And for many people, there is no answer. There is no end. And even if this isn't your experience of suffering, you have your own version of how long and why. Francis Anderson writes, the prophet has prayed more than long enough, and it is already too late. The urgency for the call for swift action has given way to a deeper anxiety. So that's how the book of Habakkuk opens, the problem of evil, the problem of delay, that for Habakkuk has given way to deep anxiety. And the commentator just goes on to ask, if God doesn't seem just, how can we believe that he is just? If God doesn't seem compassionate, how can we believe that this God is compassionate? But here's the thing. Habakkuk still prays. He still wrestles with God. Many of you might think, well, faith is the absence of doubt. Faith and doubt, they're complete opposites. But faith is not the absence of doubt. In fact, Habakkuk is a man of faith, and he has the boldness to pray to God. Habakkuk is a man of faith who takes his doubts and his questions to God, and he's unafraid to wrestle with God with these deep issues in life. In fact, Habakkuk's faith in God gives him the confidence to run to God with all his fears, doubts, and unanswered questions. And church, this will help us as we think about faith and doubt coexisting side by side. This will help us to avoid two common pitfalls during times of suffering when we, when we are tempted to really question God and maybe even walk away from him. This helps us to avoid the pitfalls of despair and denial. In despair, we can lose our faith, become discouraged, or even abandon God completely. And despair can take many forms. We can have despair when we wish for the good old days, thinking that, oh, America was just so much better back then. Well, certain aspects are better, but certain aspects were a whole lot worse. And we can forget that the human heart has always been corrupt and on a downward spiral. When Adam and Eve fell in Genesis 3, we see the first murder in Genesis 4. And human society without God has never, ever been on an upward trend. But despair can take a darker turn. Despair can lead us in times of great suffering, in unanswered questions and unanswered prayers. Despair can lead us to give up to throw in the towel, to walk away from God. And many have chosen this route. Maybe you know a loved one or a friend who just gave into despair and just gave up on God completely. And none of us are immune to this. Charles Templeton co-founded Youth for Christ International and hired Billy Graham as their first full-time evangelist. And Templeton and Graham went on these evangelistic crusades together, seeing God do mighty works. But Templeton began to have doubts about his faith. And sadly, after a long struggle, finally rejected the Christ that he preached. And he writes this, I was reading Life magazine, and there was a photograph in the magazine of a black woman in northern Africa. And she was holding her dead baby in her hands in her hands, and looking up to heaven. And I looked at it and I thought, how could a loving God do this to this woman? How is it possible to believe that there is a loving or caring creator when all this woman needed was rain? Church, we might not be tempted to go that far, but many of us might be tempted to think that, well, God has forgotten me, or God doesn't care. That's a pitfall we need to be aware of. We could also fall, fall into the trap of denial, not just despair, but denial. We can look at all the brokenness in our world and become numb to it. It can, e- it can be easy as we just turn on the TV, the radio, or uh, the Internet just to tune out the earthquakes, the riots, the violence. But we need to be grieved like God is grieved, In Genesis 6, when God saw how wicked the world was, this is right before he was going to wipe it out with a flood, when he saw that every intention of mankind was only evil continually, God was sorry in his heart. He was grieved in his heart. And before that judgment came, God was sad. He was filled with sorrow and grief. And so Habakkuk's indignation, his anguish, his grief, that's the right response. We don't always have to put on our Sunday best. Our Sunday smile and pretend everything is okay because there are times that everything is not okay and we would be denying ourselves if we pretended that everything is okay. Habakkuk wrestles with this problem of evil, the problem of delay. He's asking how long and why, but he still prays, he doesn't give in to despair. He doesn't disconnect from God, thinking that, well, God isn't there or God isn't interested. He doesn't follow the path of Charles Templeton and many others and just walk away from God. He doesn't follow the path of denial and disconnect himself from the world. Habakkuk perseveres in bold and unwavering prayer to God. In the words of one commentator, it is a wise man who takes his questions about God to God for the answers. The wise man takes his questions about God to God for the answers. And that's really the difference between faithful complaints and unfaithful. We can protest. We can ask, how long, oh Lord? We can ask why in a faithful way, or we can do it in an unfaithful way. And the difference is whether our, as we pour out our heart, as we pour out our complaints, that leads us towards God or it takes us away from God. The unfaithful lament, the unfaithful protest and complaint, those complaints take us only to our bed, to our pillow, but not towards God. This is what happens in Hosea chapter 7, which is also one of the minor prophets. This is God speaking. God says, I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. So we must be careful when we're enduring suffering, when we have unanswered questions, that we can be tempted to wail upon our beds, wail out of self-pity, to complain and to grumble about God, to speak lies about God, to gossip about God, rather than complain to God. And that's a very subtle difference. Complaining to God drives us to God, but complaining about God drives us away from God. And Habakkuk really provides that way forward, provides that perfect tension between faith and complaint, faith and complaint. Francis Anderson puts it this way, Habakkuk is refusing to let it go, refusing to accept things as they are, refusing to deny the reality of evil that seems endless and boundless, refusing to surrender to inevitable fate, but rather asserting human freedom, refusing to be silent, crying out, not just in angry protest, but in desperate prayers to the God who is responsible for it all. So Habakkuk opens with sin and suffering. How long and why? But he refuses to give in to despair He refuses to give in to denial. Habakkuk chooses the path of desperate prayers to the all-knowing and all-powerful God who is responsible for it all. And when God makes no sense to me, church, we must look to God and press on in prayer. We must look to God and press on in prayer. Finally, God does give an answer. After all those prayers, after all those questions... God gives his answer, but it's not the answer Habakkuk expects. Let's look at that surprising response that Habakkuk gets in verse 5. This is God speaking. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God's answer is going to blow Habakkuk's mind. Habakkuk... Pouring out his heart in lament, in sorrow, in complaints. He is hoping that God is going to bring an oracle of salvation. But instead, God brings an oracle of judgment. Habakkuk is hoping that God is going to now destroy the wicked and vindicate the righteous. But instead, God is raising up the Chaldeans. Chaldeans is just another word for Babylonians. God is going to raise up the Babylonians as judgment against Judah. So, Habakkuk's question. What are you going to do about the sin of Judah? God's answer is, the Babylonians are now going to conquer you as judgment against the entire country. And what's surprising is that this coming Babylonian conquest is going to be fast and ferocious. Look at verse 8. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. And this conquest is going to come with surprising speed. We know from history that Assyria at this time, during the time Habakkuk was prophesying, Assyria was the world's superpower at that time. Babylon was just a conquered country, conquered state. It was this little and weak nation, just like we would think of the nation of Kuwait maybe. But in 614 BC, Babylon would suddenly arise and conquer the capital of Assyria, and then uh, that was Nineveh, and then conquer a combined army of Egyptian and Assyrian troops at the Battle of Carchemish, and then sweep the world stage from start to finish in just 20 years. Just 20 years, they would conquer all these people. And God is telling Habakkuk about this swift, sudden, and unbelievable conquest, so it would be clear that he was behind it nobody would have predicted something like that. It's like if I were to tell you Kuwait is going to suddenly rise up and then uh, beat up Iraq, you know, get back, get even to Iraq, and then sweep the Middle East, conquer Africa, Asia, Europe, and then sweep over to North America, South America. I mean, that just wouldn't make any sense. But that's what's going to happen with the Babylonians. They're going to conquer the world and do it quickly. I looked up some of the fastest cars on record And it's uh, not the Lamborghini. It's got a top speed of 220 miles per hour. Goes from zero to 60 in three seconds. Not the Ferrari, which goes 245 miles per hour. The fastest car on record is actually a car built by nerds and engineers. It's called the Thrust SSC that reaches a top speed of 771 miles an hour. And in October 1997, in the Black Rock Desert of Utah, it became the first land vehicle to, beat, to break the sound barrier. And the thrust SSC did it with two engines that are used on fighter jets to give it 110,000 horsepower. God is telling Habakkuk that the Babylonians will be breaking every single world record in speed. It's going to be so fast, they won't believe it. The Babylonians are going to thrust through the desert break all the barriers in, its, in their path, and then smoke everyone. Look at verse 9. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gathered captives like sand. And not, not only is it going to be fast, it's actually going to be very ferocious. It would be like the Islamic State, if the Islamic State were a, were a world superpower, and they could do whatever they wanted. Now, isn't that a scary thought? And so that's what Babylon is going to do. They're going to employ some of those terrorist tactics. And it's also not just the fact that it's fast and ferocious. It's surprising because it doesn't fit what Habakkuk knows of God's promises and God's covenant to Israel. These Babylonians are going to gather captives like sand. But if you remember, God promised to bless the nation of Israel, that they would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand by the sea but now it's the exact opposite. They're going to be gathered like captives. If you remember, Joshua led Israel to take over the land of Canaan, take over the promised land, but now the situation would be reversed. Now Judah would be driven out, just like those wicked Canaanites. They would disinherit the promised land. Yahweh tells the prophet, Yahweh tells the prophet that his people will experience the end of prosperity, the end of their political autonomy, the increased success of the more wicked, and the withdrawal of Yahweh's protection. So Habakkuk, he's expecting an oracle of salvation where the wicked are destroyed and the righteous are vindicated, but he gets an oracle of judgment and the warning that there will be increased suffering, the end of the prosperity of their nation, the withdrawal of Yahweh's protection. And this is where prosperity preaching can be really, really dangerous because it runs counter against what the Bible teaches. God is telling Habakkuk and Judah that they will not be getting their best life now. The commentator continues, God's first interest is not in our prosperity Or political power. He prefers to destroy us in hope of eventually accomplishing his greater purpose rather than to see us prosper in political security. God is not primarily committed to the peace, success, and prosperity of his people. God's first concern for us is faithfulness, living by his word, and true worship. Look with me again to verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. This, these few verses are actually quoted by the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 13. You can look, follow on the screen here. This is Paul preaching. He says, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Paul preaches this during his first missionary trip when he's preaching the gospel in the Roman province of Galatia, and Paul references this coming Babylonian invasion, this coming fast and ferocious judgment as a foreshadow of the final judgment for those who reject the gospel. We see an example of something I would describe as lesser to greater. Something in the Old Testament points to a a greater and more awesome reality. So for example, You know that King David and King Solomon were great kings of Israel, but they only point forward and and anticipate the greater and more ultimate king, King Jesus. And so this Babylonian judgment is going to be bad. It's going to result in death and exile for the whole country. But this coming judgment is nothing compared to the eternal judgment for those who die in their sins and reject the Savior, Jesus Christ it might be uncomfortable for us to talk about hell and eternal judgment for those who die in their sins. But God's salvation is not simply a take it or leave it kind of a nice-to-have thing. It's an issue of life or death. It's an issue of salvation or destruction. And tragically, we know from history that God's Word, Habakkuk and Jeremiah and other prophets, were rejected. Most people didn't believe God's word. They didn't hear this oracle of judgment and repent. They didn't respond. They hardened their hearts against God's word. And we know that Nebuchadnezzar was that king of Babylon who swept the world stage. He laid siege to Judah and scores, hundreds, thousands of people of Judah died by the sword, by the famine, by plague. And in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar would conquer Judah completely by burning Jerusalem to the ground, destroying the palace and the temple and destroying the walls. Prophecy can really be hard to believe. If you were in Judah at the time of Habakkuk hearing about this coming judgment and this God's judgment coming, it would be hard to believe. But it's an act of faith for us to believe God's Word, even when it contradicts our senses, contradicts what we see around us. And that's really what it means to be a Christian, to be people of the book. We stake our life on this, even if it doesn't make sense to us at times. We have to ask ourselves, especially in times of suffering, in times of unanswered questions and doubts, where are we tempted to disbelieve what God has spoken to us? Where are we tempted to lean on our own understanding, to fall into the pit of despair or denial. When God makes no sense to me, we must look to God and press on in prayer. But it does raise an important question. Is God okay with all of this? Things have gone from bad to worse. Is God okay with this fast and ferocious conquest, these wicked Babylonians sweeping the world stage? Look at verse 11, at God's assessment. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So these Babylonians are going to, are going to take idolatry and violence to a new level. God's going to raise them up to punish wicked Judah with these even more wicked Babylonians, but that raises more questions for Habakkuk. It just doesn't make any sense. makes no sense to Habakkuk at all. That God would give this kind of answer. And before we go on about this answer, I want, I want us to pay attention for, just to see how God gives his answer, this incredible, unbelievable answer that requires faith. Habakkuk asks his initial questions, how long and why, as an individual, as a single person. But God answers in this section in the plural. Those verses are probably better understood as all of you Look among the nations and see. God is addressing the faith community. We have to remember when we're wrestling with unanswered prayer, unanswered questions, fears, and doubts, we don't wrestle alone. We wrestle in community. Habakkuk is not alone, and neither are we. Rather than isolate ourselves in those great times of suffering, those great times of unanswered questions, we need to open ourselves up and share. We have to remember that to be a Christian means to be in community. And that goes against our cultural currents, which says that the individual is primary. So in verse 12, we see that Habakkuk, it begins a section where Habakkuk, uh, you know, has his second complaint, where he he pours out his heart, right? I mean, he has his questions. God's answer makes no sense. Now he's going to engage and wrestle with God further. He's got more questions now at this point. But notice how he does that. Habakkuk does that with a posture of worship. See, God's answer, this, this coming Babylonian judgment, this fast and ferocious conquest, that makes no sense. But Habakkuk actually doesn't start there. He doesn't start with his own understanding. He starts with a wholehearted trust in the Lord. He starts with worship, with holding on to God. We know very little about Habakkuk, but some scholars think that his name might have come from the Hebrew root verb called habak, which means to embrace. If that's true, it's an interesting theory. Habakkuk's name could mean one who embraces, one who embraces and clings to God no matter what. And this is how he, and this is how he starts his second complaint. Look at verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. So for Habakkuk, Yahweh is my God, my Holy One, my everlasting Lord over all. So even though that the nation is coming to an end, God's word is still going to be true. Habakkuk is like Abraham going up that mountain knowing that he has to sacrifice his son Isaac, and he's going up that three-day hike. But before he goes up that hike. He tells the men who are with him, I and the boy will return. Abraham has unshakable faith in God's promise to give him a child and to bless all the nations through him. He's not sure how it'll all work out, but his faith is unshakable. And we know from history that after the Babylonian conquest, after that death and exile, a remnant returns after 70 years to rebuild the temple, the walls, the city. You can read all about that in Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And so Habakkuk steps back and places his focus during the second complaint not on the activity of God, not what God is doing or what God says he will do, but on the character of God. Because more fundamental to what God is doing is who God is. God is the eternal one, the holy God, the sovereign ruler, the immovable rock. And that posture takes faith, takes faith when God's activity, what God's doing makes no sense to us, and we just simply choose to rest in the character of God like Habakkuk does. Habakkuk does, he acknowledges that God has ordained these Babylonians as judgment, but he's wondering, is that consistent with God's character? How does that fit with God's promises? God made these promises to Israel and then David. How does God's election of Israel fit with God's destruction of Israel. And that makes no sense. And yet we see Habakkuk press in and call Yahweh, my Lord, my God, my Holy One, in the, midst of these, in the midst of this confusion. And we're really back where we started. If you remember where we started, Habakkuk is wrestling with God, the problem of evil, the problem of delay. He's asking how long and why. And he sees that the cure of the Babylonian judgment is worse than the original disease. And he is throwing up his protest. In verse 14, he says to God, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And look at verse 16. Therefore he, the wicked Babylonians, sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. So this is the assessment the wicked are prospering, even more so. The Babylonians, even more wicked, but even more success. And this makes no sense to Habakkuk. And, he, and we have to look at verse 17, because this is basically where we started. It's basically unanswered questions after unanswered questions. Habakkuk goes on to ask God, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? How long will the Babylonians do this? How long will they get away with it? Won't you do something? Because at this point, things haven't gotten better. They've actually gotten worse. Rather than get relief from suffering, God promises more suffering. And rather than answer questions, God's answer raises more questions. And in the coming weeks, we'll see how Habakkuk's faith is really transformed to a triumphant faith. As he continues to wrestle with God and he gains a vision of who God is and God's salvation this quote from Francis Anderson will we'll, we'll, we'll explain where we're headed in the coming weeks. By the time the end of the book is reached, Habakkuk's vision has expanded to cosmic proportions. The progression is like that in the book of Job. The purposes of God for one person or one nation can be understood only in terms of the whole world. This means that God alone understands it all while humans get glimpses. The purpose of God for one period of time, your days, can be understood only in terms of eternity and eschatology. Eschatology is simply a a fancy theological word meaning, how is God going to finish everything he started? How is God going to establish truth, righteousness, and justice? How is he going to make it all work out in the end to establish the righteous and punish the wicked? And so Habakkuk is really a a mini book of Job where he's, he's the righteous sufferer. He lives by faith, struggles by faith, and holds on to dear life by faith. I want to briefly conclude that, you know, as we wrestle with God, as we wrestle with the problem of evil and suffering, we have to remember that our ultimate hope is not in our own faith or our ability to look to God and press on in prayer. Because our, our strength is weak. We get so easily discouraged. We can so easily fall into despair and denial. But there is one who came, who always looked to God and pressed on in prayer. There is one who called to God but never got an answer. There is one who asked to be rescued but was left to die. This God, this rock, was the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity who came down for the sake of his people. And on the cross, when Jesus was dying, he cried out, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Habakkuk is the righteous sufferer, cries out to God, doesn't really get the answer he expects, but, that, but he points us to the ultimate righteous sufferer, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who lived in our world of injustice, sin, and suffering. He experienced suffering at the hands of the wicked. And yet for our sake, God, the Father, made him, made Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. All of the sins of God's people were put on Jesus Christ. And so as he died on the cross, Jesus Christ cried for help, but there was no response. He was a victim of violence But he wasn't saved jesus was surrounded by the wicked but he had no justice christ chose to come and suffer and he did this all for our sake he did that for us he was faithful for us and in our place so church as we wrestle with these unanswered questions as we wrestle with doubts and fears and suffering just remember there's one who came before us who suffered in our place who himself called out to God but was never answered, who was rejected and <clears throat> rejected and forsaken by God again for our sake. And if you haven't yet placed your trust in Christ, if you haven't come to him with the burden of your sin, come to him today. Surrender your, your fears, your doubts, your unanswered question, and most important, surrender your sin and living for yourself and receive the gift of eternal life. This God now answers our prayers in Jesus Christ. He understands, he knows, and he is eager to be with you forever in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just turn on the news and we're wondering how long and why. We look at our own lives and we wonder how long and why the lives of people around us, God. God, give us faith. Help us to look to the faithful one as we wrestle with these questions. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.